Our scripture reading is Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. Definitely the prettiest scripture reader we've ever had. <laughs> well, good morning. My name is Brett, one of the pastors here. Today I have the honor of continuing in our series titled Unshakable, where we've been looking at the life of Nehemiah through the book titled Nehemiah, to ask the question, how can we live unshakable lives in the midst of shaky times? And today we're going to continue that theme, but as you can see, we're stepping out of the book of Nehemiah and into the book of Psalms, Psalm 146 to be exact, which was written during the time period between Israel's return from their captivity in Babylon when they rebuilt the temple and Nehemiah beginning to rebuild the wall, a period of waiting. See, the book of Nehemiah gives us a historical context and events of what happened in Nehemiah's life, but this psalm here is going to give us kind of a peek behind the curtain into the heart and the motivation as to why and how Nehemiah was able to do what God had called him to do. And so this morning, I want to look uh, at this psalm. I want to share a little bit of my own story of how Melissa and I have experienced what I also believe Nehemiah experienced, and that's this truth. You can only live an unshakable life when your trust is in an unshakable God. Let's take a look at three perspectives we see in Psalm 146 that show us what it takes to become unshakable. I want to look at the shaking fear, the steadying faith, and lastly, the unshakable God. All right, the shaking fear. In verses three through four, the psalmist writes this. Put not your trust in princes and a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Now, let me give you a little background behind what the psalmist is referring to here. So the Israelites, uh, God had called them out from among the nations and said, I want you to, to reflect who I am, to image me, to glorify me in the midst of these other nations. Well, Israel's response to that was, well, thanks, but no thanks, Lord. We actually want to become like these nations because that would make us really powerful and really spectacular and really glorious. And the guy said, okay, you want to be like those nations and here you go. And he allowed the Babylonians to come in and take the Jews off to captivity. They were in captivity for 70 years, at which time Persia came in and conquered Babylonia. Uh, King uh, Cyrus of Persia came in and said, okay, Jews, y'all have been taken captive by the Persians now, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going I'm to write a decree. And I'm going to give you permission to head back to your homeland in Jerusalem to rebuild your temple and reestablish yourselves as a people. Well, he died shortly after, and the next king that stepped in was like, ah, actually, never mind. 
you're staying here. This psalm was written in that time period where the Jewish people had this hope and this expectation of returning home that had been stopped short and now they're in this period of waiting and waiting and waiting with no end in sight. And the psalmist pins these words. So when he says, put not your trust in princes and a son of man in whom there is no salvation, he's not only commenting on the fact that King Cyrus's words had failed to deliver what he said they would deliver, but also in the fact that all these other princes, these false idols, these created things that the Israelites had put their hope and their trust and their identity in over the years had also failed to deliver on the things that the Israelites thought they would deliver. So they had put their trust in the shaky things of this world, and now they found themselves being shaken. But see, I think that's true for all of us. I mean, if we were honest, I think the moments that we fear the most fearful, the most anxious, the most unstable, is usually, now not always, but usually the result of our looking to and trusting in the things of this world for our own security and identity. Things like money and power and relationships, a spouse. And in that fear and anxiety, we start to feel like God is so distant in our lives. We start to shake. And the reason we shake is because we inevitably know the thing I'm putting my hope and my trust and my identity in is just as fallen, fragile, and unstable as I am. But it's so tempting to do, isn't it? At times, God can seem distant. Something or someone comes along that promises to deliver us from that fear, from that anxiety, from that insecurity, and it's just so much easier to grab hold of the created thing that's right in front of us rather than the creator God that we can't see sometimes. This is what Melissa and I have struggled with over the past five years. See, in February of 2012, we began the process of international adoption. We prayed for God was leading us to Ethiopia, which had over 5 million orphan children, 10% of which will die before their fifth birthday. After three and a half years of paperwork, constantly changing timelines, we were finally matched with our sweet daughter, Helena, in May of 2015. In January of 2016, we had our approval letter from the U.S. signed and, and mailed in, and we were waiting for the approval letter from the Ethiopian government which would give us our court date, which would allow us to travel to Ethiopia to take custody of our daughter and bring her home to be with her family. We were told it should take maybe three or four months. So we prayed, God, bring it quickly. When six months had passed, we prayed harder. We were anxious to hear something, anything. Getting frustrated and angry at the men and women who worked for the Ethiopian government who, from our perspective, didn't seem to care to do their job. We were putting our trust and princes, and the sons of men, thinking that they held the answers to our problems. But we continue to pray, and many of you prayed right alongside of us. And after nine months with no word, we began to really question if God was with us. I was getting more frustrated, increasingly angry. I felt dismissed by the government, overlooked by God, the prisoner of an unjust system. My wife and I started to shake. My prayers begin to sound like this. God, I know your heart is for the orphaned. And I know you're just and righteous and all-powerful. So God, I don't understand why you're allowing these people to keep this orphan girl from coming home to be with her family. God, I'm beginning to wonder if you really care. I'm beginning to wonder if you're really with us. I'm beginning to wonder if you can do anything about it. God, you feel so distant. I think I might need to take things into my own hands. 
And that fear and that anxiety and that hopelessness began to rise up in my heart. And then December came. And after one year of waiting for one man to sign one line on one piece of paper, we were done. The temptation to take matters into our own hands, to trust in a son of man rather than in God was a very real struggle for me at least. And I can imagine this is what Nehemiah was feeling like as well. He was working for the king of Persia and living a good life, but he was still a Jewish man. And as a Jewish man, the idea of rebuilding the temple and returning to his homeland wasn't just, oh, that'd be nice to be in my comfort zone. It was a source of identity, a source of security. It was their culture. It was their life. And so to lose that was a, was a travesty. And yet they knew that God had promised that they would go back, that they would return. And here they were waiting and waiting and waiting, wondering when was the end going to come? So their lives were shaking. The fear that they would never be the nation that God had promised that they would be. The fear that God's promises were not going to come to pass were rising up. But then, as we saw a few weeks ago, Nehemiah begins to feel like something needs to be done. He can't wait any longer. He's done with the frustration and the uncertainty. But rather than trusting in himself, rather than trusting in any other created thing, Nehemiah takes that fear and frustration into the presence of God. See, when he found himself shaking, Nehemiah knew that he needed to run to the one who was unshakable. Which brings us to point number two, the steadying faith. It says, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry, The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Now, think about this. The Jews had been in captivity for 70 years. They finally are set free, delivered by the Persians. The king of Persia says, hey, you can return home, rebuild your temple. Six years later, he dies. A new king steps in and says, no, you can't return home. You're staying here. 20 years after that, another king steps in and says, oh, by the way, you can return home again. And it's this constant roller coaster, this up and down of fear and hope, anticipation and rejection, rising up and down. And even though their faith was shaky, even though this psalmist's faith was shaky, they knew that there was a God who was unshakable. I believe it's this thought this psalm that helped influence Nehemiah to make his request of King Artaxerxes at some point at later, a request that could have cost him his life to go back and rebuild the wall. It's the same reminder that motivated Melissa and me to press on in our story. It's after 12 months of waiting for our letter from, Ethiop- from the Ethiopian government, something had to be done. And as much as I wanted to go all Liam Neeson on him, the reminder that the God of Jacob was faithful brought me to my knees in prayer. See, I knew that in my shaken, frustrated, angry state, me going over there could actually cause more harm than good. But I knew that God was unshakable. So on December 13th, so having no word from Ethiopia, I woke up and I prayed. And I asked God what we should do. My prayer was this, Father, I know your heart is for our daughter. And I know you are just and I know that you are good. But something needs to be done. 
I'm thinking about going over there and doing something about it, but God, I need to know, will you be with me? Should I go? To which God's reply was this, go, for I have frustrated your process and delayed your letter to bring you to this place, to the place where you would be willing to go and do whatever it took to bring your daughter home. Go, because I will be with you in every step and I will open every door and I will move on every heart. Go, because I am going to use Helena's story to paint a picture of the gospel and touch the hearts of others. What you desire will come to pass. So we booked a flight and headed to the airport the next day to travel to a foreign land where I did not speak the language, where violence and unrest and protest were in process. And with tears flowing, I hugged Melissa and the kids and I stepped on the plane. stuffed in my uh, luggage which were very encouraging definitely felt all the prayers everyone was praying for my travel and uh, now I'm going to get a good night's sleep and first thing in the morning eat some breakfast and I'm heading over to uh, the MOA offices start knocking on doors and seeing if I can get some answers looking forward to seeing everything God's going to do trusting he's going to move mountains trusting he's going to open doors and uh, trusting he's going to give me favor so I look forward to a great testimony to share with you tomorrow good night Friday morning, Addis Ababa. About to go eat breakfast, spend some time praying this morning, and feel like God's with me. God's got something set up for me and Melissa and Helena today. And uh, I've just been asking that He would give me favor and help me to, to uh, speak to the right people, be as intimidating as I need to be, and as humbling as I ought to be, as humble as I ought to be. Um, I really feel like God's something big in store for us today so I'm going to come back with good news and uh, keep you updated so later that morning Simi the agency rep from our adoption agency and I hopped in a car we headed to the government offices at MOA's the agency's name and uh, on the way there Simi looks over to me and he says "Uh, Brett this could go really badly for you He said, we're probably not going to make it past the security guards. If by some miracle we do make it past the security guards, you're probably not going to find anybody who's interested in anything you have to say because they don't like being interrupted during their jobs, especially by an American adoptive father who's coming over here to tell them how to do their job. 
says, if you do by some miracle find someone who's willing to listen to what you have to say, they're not going to really care much about it. So this could go really badly for you. He said, in fact, if they feel like you've come here to shame them or to bully them or to manipulate them, they, in spite, are going to actually cause your case to last even longer and frustrate you even more just to prove a point. This could go really badly for you. And I began to shake. And for a moment, I thought about telling Simeon, then turn the car around. But then I remembered that the unshakable God had promised to be with me. I said, Simeon, I understand everything that you're saying. I appreciate your concern. But I also know that I prayed about this. And in my prayer, God said, go, I will be with you and I will open every door that needs to be opened. I said, so Simeon, I can either obey or disobey and I choose to obey today. To which Simeon said, okay, let's go see what God wants to do. We get to the office, we open the door, I get out of the car, I take a deep breath and we make our way to the security guards. We approach security guard and Simi introduces me briefly and explains why I'm there, to which the security guard looks me up and down and he says, come on in. (laughs) Simi looks at me with disbelief, like what just happened? I just went ahead and started walking because I figured I better get in there before he changes his mind. We walked up the stairs and we come to the top of the stairs. We came to an office. It just so happened with the office of the lead caseworker, the man whose signature we needed on our file. We knocked on the door. A tall Ethiopian man answers the door, looks at us with a puzzled look, invites us in. Simi goes and stands in the corner and begins staring at the ground, clearly terrified about what was about to happen. I look at Simi. I look at the man. I look back at Simi. I'm thinking, are you going to introduce me? Am I like, how's this work? I don't. Simi doesn't say anything. So I look at the man. Do you speak English? (laughs) He gave me a very condescending yes. I then introduced myself and said, my wife and I have been in the adoption process for five years. We've been waiting for our letter from Moa for 12 months. And there's all these stacks of papers and folders that's sitting all over his office. And I know that our letter, our file was somewhere in the midst of those stacks of paper. And I said, sir, I've been waiting 12 months and my letter is somewhere in this office. And I'm here to figure out what I need to do to get you to sign it or at least find out some information as to when that might happen. He then lifts up his finger and interrupts me. The first words out of his mouth were this. You should not be here. This was very bad. What made you think it was a good idea to come to my office? And I began to shake. But in that moment, I remember two things. Number one, I remember that the God of Jacob was faithful. Number two, I remember that my daughter was just 80 miles away from where I was sitting, waiting for me to come get her and take her home. And the Holy Spirit in that moment said, ask him about his kids. I said, sir, do you have children? He said, yes, I have three. My youngest is a four-year-old girl. So, well, sir, imagine your little girl was stuck in a situation halfway around the world where she was not getting the nourishment that she needed. She was drinking contaminated water that was full of parasites. She wasn't getting the love, the attention, the care, or the affection that you and your wife could give her at home. And there was nothing you could do about it. But there was a man in that place, in that country, that could write a letter that had the power to give you permission to travel around the world to come pick up your daughter, to take her home and love her as only you could love her. But for whatever reason, that man would not sign that letter and he wouldn't give you any information as to when that was going to happen. Sir, if you were in that situation, what would you do? He was sitting like this, staring at me. 
He unfolded his arms. He leaned forward in his chair. He looked me right in my eyes. And he said, I would get on a plane and fly halfway around the world and go find that man. I said, sir, that is why I'm here today. I'm not here to tell you how to do your job. I'm not here to intimidate you. I'm not here to threaten you. I'm here as a father in love with his daughter, wanting to know what I need to do to get her home. He said, then he asked me a question that caught me off guard. He said, why? You've never met this girl. Who is she to you? To which I remember the unshakable God had said, I'm going to use Helena's story as a picture of the gospel to touch the hearts of many. So I was like, here's my chance. And I launched in. I said, sir, I'm a Christian. And the Bible tells me that when I was separated from my father, when I was lost and abandoned and isolated and separated, that my father left his home in heaven. And he came to find me and he did whatever was necessary and paid whatever price he needed to pay, even to the point of death, to reconcile me and to bring me back home, to adopt me into his family and to love me as his own. And sir, it is that love that God has put in my heart for this girl and I'm not leaving Ethiopia until I get her. At that point, I'm thinking, I'm about to lead this dude to Jesus. He's going to sign my letter. The Holy Spirit's going to drop the mic, and we're walking out of here. Well, that's not exactly what happened, but it was pretty close. He says, I too am a Christian. And everything you just said is why I do this job. He's like, but no one else in Ethiopia that I have found sees it that way. They see these orphans as inconveniences, and they see adoption as a thing to be ashamed of. Are there other Christians in America that believe the way you believe? To which I said, I'm a part of a whole church full of them. And we mentor children in elementary schools. That we go and we serve and we support and we start education programs for children in Mexico and Dominican Republic and Uganda and India. So we care for the unborn and we care for widows and orphans. God's heart for these children is the heart of our church. Which he said, mine too. And we talked for another 20 minutes about Jesus and God's kingdom and the heart of adoption and how adoption is a picture of the gospel. And then he started speaking to Simi, who was no longer staring at the floor. <laughs> they started talking in Amharic for a couple of minutes. I had no idea what was going on. Then Simi stands up. He says, okay, we need to go now. And I'm like, but I haven't gotten any answers. He said, trust me, we need to go now. I trusted Simi. We walked out the door. We went back down the stairs, back past the security guards, back to the car. We get in, we shut the doors and Simi goes, God is good. God is good. Oh my God. To which I replied, what, what just happened? Simi says, that man just told me he was supposed to be on a flight in two hours, leaving the country, country for the next week for government meetings that he had put together. He said, but what he just told me was he was going to rebook his flight to tomorrow and reschedule all of those meetings so he could locate your file and sign your paper so you can move on. God is unshakable. But that's not the end of it. At that point, I called my wife. Actually, I had to wait nine hours for her to wake up to call my wife, the longest nine hours of my life. She booked flights, and she and our good friend Corey Sullivan over here hopped on a plane and arrived in Ethiopia midnight Christmas morning. Now, getting that letter triggered our court date, which was scheduled for three weeks out. But I didn't want to wait for three weeks. I knew our unshakable God's heart was for our daughter, and I wanted to get her home as quickly as we could. And so I said, babe, come on over as quickly as you can. We're going to go to the courts. When you get here, we're going to see what happens. But to do that, we had a mandatory law by Ethiopian 
uh, Ethiopian government is you have to visit your child for two days before you can appear in court. So if we were going to attempt to go to court, we at least had to get the two-day visitation in. Problem with that was they arrived on a Sunday when the orphanage is not fully staffed and therefore we wouldn't be able to visit because they're not there to host us. And so we were going to have to wait till Monday to visit her Monday and Tuesday, which means we'd have to wait till Thursday or the following Tuesday to go to court. But we prayed because we have an unshakable God who moves mountains. And our unshakable God moved on the heart of that orphanage director and she called us up and she said, you know what? I was about to tell you not to come because we didn't have enough staff, but here's what we'll do. Why don't y'all go ahead and come out? We'll let you take Helena out of the orphanage to a local resort down the street to spend the night with you so that you can spend the time you need with her and bring her back on Monday afternoon, which is completely unheard of and out of the procedures of the orphanage. I think might have been violated some laws. I don't know. (laughs) But we did that. Corey and Melissa and I, we took custody of Helena, we took her to this resort, we had dinner, we played, we laughed, changed a really nasty diaper, and Monday afternoon we took her back to the orphanage. That allowed us Tuesday morning to get up and go to the court. So we arrive at court three weeks earlier than our actual hearing was scheduled. We asked around, finally found someone to talk to, and we said, hey, is it possible for us to see the judge today? We're already here, we're in country, can we see the judge today? To which you're told in a number of different ways, no, that's not possible, that's an idiot question, that's not going to happen. And we started to shake. And then we remembered our unshakable God cares for widows and orphans, and he seeks justice. So we said, let's just say it was possible. What would we need to do to make that happen? They said, well, you would have to go to this office to sign and fill out an affidavit, You'd have to take it over to this office to get it notarized. You'd have to take it up to find the, the, the judge's assistant, somehow get it into her hands, then hope that she somehow gets it in front of the judge, then hope that the judge somehow actually takes a look at it. And once he takes a look at it, you'll have to hope that he actually makes a decision to take time out of his already overly booked schedule to meet with the presumptuous Americans who thought they could just show up at the court and do whatever they wanted to do. And we started to shake. But we knew that our God was unshakable. And so we went to the affidavit office and they looked at us like we were crazy and we signed the papers. We took it to the notary and she looked at us like we were crazy and we, she, she notarized it. We took it upstairs to the judge's office with our caseworker Solomon who very wisely, according to his name, started working the judge's assistant over with flattery and jokes and flirtation or something. I don't know what he said, I'm hard, but she seemed to like it. And every time she'd stick her head out to call in the next family, he would make a comment and laugh and she'd go back in and she'd stick her head out and he'd make a comment and laugh and go back in. Well, then she opens the door and sticks her head out to make the announcement that the judge will see no more adoption cases today. And we begin to shake. But we trusted in our unshakable God. And at that moment, Solomon very discreetly switched, uh, slipped our, our uh, affidavit into her hand. She looked at it. And then she looked at us like we were crazy. She went back into the judge's office. Five minutes later, the door opens. She says, the judge will see you now. So Corey starts praying. Melissa and I start trying to figure out how we're going to respond to the question of who on earth do you think you are showing up in my courtroom like this? To our surprise, we walk in. He doesn't say anything like that. He asks us the same questions he asked all the other adoptive families. And at the end of the conversation, he says, then I grant you your adoption decree. You can come pick it up in three to five business days. Well, we didn't want to wait three to five business days. 
And we knew that our God had promised to be with us. And so we asked, well, Your Honor, if it's all the same to you, would it be possible to get the decree today? Now, I asked this in Amharic, which I guess he liked. And uh, he said, yes, I am sure we can do this. 30 minutes later, we had our adoption decree, and Helena was legally our daughter. God is unshakable. From that point, we had to move towards to getting our birth certificate. Well, the server was down all day on Thursday. Friday, I started working 30 minutes before the office closed, so we rode over there, got our birth certificate. The next Monday, we had to go get our passport, and where 200 people were standing in line, we had our passport within four hours. Same day. From there, we had to go to our medical clearance. Helena passed the medical clearance for flying colors, but the doctor at the United Nations Medical Office said our servers aren't set up yet. We just moved into these offices. They're not due to be set up for another three to five business days, so you can come back and pick up your forms then. To which I said, I bet there's a chance those forms could be ready today. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But our unshakable God moved again. About four o'clock that afternoon, the servers were up and running and she was printing out our medical forms. Now, that was important because we had to go to the U.S. Embassy next. And the embassy only takes submissions of forms on Monday and Wednesday. They only set up exit interviews on Tuesday and Thursday. Well, we didn't get our medical forms printed until Thursday afternoon. So we're going to have to wait till the following Monday to go to try to submit our papers. Hopefully get an interview, exit interview on Tuesday or that Thursday so we could go home by that following Friday. But we knew that our God was unshakable. And so we knelt down and we prayed on Thursday night. We said, God, we need you to move. We need you to do something miraculous. We need to get to the, to the U.S. Embassy tomorrow morning and get our exit interview tomorrow. To which God replied, go. And not only that, but go ahead and book your flights for tomorrow night because you're going home. So we booked our flights Thursday night. Got up Friday morning at 7.30 in the morning, headed over to the U.S. Embassy. Explained our case and our situation, handed them our documents. They looked at us like we were crazy. Four hours later, we were walking out of the U.S. Embassy with every form we needed to make Helena our daughter and a citizen of the United States to get on a plane at 11.59 p.m. that night to come home with our daughter. Our God is unshakable. And I can imagine that's a bit of what Nehemiah probably felt right before he went to go talk to King Artaxerxes about rebuilding the wall. Right before he went to the forest, asked for lumber, materials. Right before he spoke with the men who were threatening to kill him for wanting to rebuild the wall. At every step of the rebuilding process, Nehemiah was faced with a shaking fear that God may not be with him. But every step, he remembered what Psalm 146 tells us. That blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. And this is what we must remember as well. When life tries to shake us, when the storms come, an accusation towards God rises up in our hearts and we're tempted to put our trust in princes and the things of this world rather than in God. So we're tempted to grasp for created things out of our, to to be our security and our identity. We have to remember that the God of Jacob is our unshakable father. But how can we know that his love is unshakable? Well, we look at point number three, the unshakable God. Verse 10 says, the Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. See, after our experience in Ethiopia, Melissa and I came home with an unshakable faith, convinced that there was nothing our God could not do. 
as Nehemiah saw God move on his behalf and he began to rebuild the wall with unshakable faith, he was convinced and confident there was nothing his God could not do. But here's the problem. As we'll see next week, Nehemiah's faith began to shake again. The reality is that even though I'm riding high on faith right now, there's going to come a day, probably sooner rather than later, when I'm going to be shaken again. And no matter how unshakable you might feel today, there will be a time where your faith will be shaken. So how can we continue to press forward with unshakable faith? Well, the psalmist tells us that we must remember that our God isn't just unshakable for a moment, but that he will reign in unshakable power forever for all generations. See, this psalmist is also influenced by another man of God a few centuries earlier named Isaiah, who prophesied this 200 years before the psalm was written. In Isaiah 9, he says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Now that prophecy was fulfilled 800 years later when Jesus who is not just a son of man, but the son of man, stepped out of his homeland of heaven, traveled to a foreign land, learned to speak our language, eat our food, embrace our culture, and in that land he did not let the rulers and the authorities dissuade him or shake him, but trusted in his unshakable father and he remained faithful. And the night that he was arrested, Jesus knelt in a garden, cried out, Father, there's any other way. Let this cup pass, yet not my will, but your will be done. In a moment of shaking, Jesus remained faithful. Then he was arrested and falsely accused and sentenced to crucifixion. And as he hung on the cross, experiencing the greatest moment of shaking the world has ever known, he prayed, Father, forgive them. He said, my God, my God, why do you feel so far from me right now? He said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And lastly, he said, it is finished. And what looked like a shaking was actually Jesus' unshakable faithfulness to his unshakable father and to us, his church. And when we look to Jesus' unshakable life, his unshakable death, his unshakable return to his throne, when we look to this unshakable king who was willing to die for us because of his unshakable love, then we can know that our trust and our hope and our confidence is not being placed in a son of man who will one day see the grave but in the son of man who has overcome the grave. And when we can do that, when we can experience an unshakable life, a life where we become who God always intended us to be. You see, the first few days that I met Helena, all she did was lay on my chest. She was lethargic. She had no energy because of the lack of nourishment. There's no smiling. There's no personality. She just kind of existed in a shadowy form of who she was. But as I continue to visit her, I continue to play with her, and I continue to hold her, and I continue to love her, and I continue to slip her Pop-Tarts when nobody was looking, (laughs) she began to smile. She began to play. She began to act silly and make faces in my phone. And then when we got her home into the hotel and back home here, and we're bathing her and changing her diapers and feeding her and snuggling with her and comforting her and being her mommy and daddy, and she got to meet her brothers and her sister... Man, she became full-on sassy and silly. She's picking on her brother. She's tagging along with her sister. She is becoming who God has always intended her to be as this little girl. 
See, she's no longer shaken by the fear of abandonment or lack of food or isolation. She's secure as a daughter. She knows that there is a mommy and a daddy who would move heaven and earth on her behalf, who she can trust. See, Helena is becoming unshakable for the same reason that Melissa and I were unshakable in our pursuit of her. For the same reason Nehemiah was unshakable in rebuilding the wall. For the same reason this psalmist was unshakable in a moment of waiting. It's because we've come to know the love of a father who is consistent, trustworthy, and loving. A father who is unshakable. Oh, and here's the cherry on top. Back in May of 2016, when we were praying about Helena's name. We liked the name Helena, but we didn't know what the middle name was going to be. And as we were praying and throwing all of our ideas and suggestions out there, God spoke to us and said, no, her middle name is going to be Noel. That was not even close to anywhere on our list. It's like, Noel, Helena Noel Milliken. It's a pretty name. That's cool. I have no idea what this adoption has to do with Christmas, but all right, cool. Helena Noel. <laughs> we'll go with it. Well, once I arrived in Ethiopia, I began to see what God was doing. See, Helena in Amharic means Revelation. Noel is the French word for Christmas or the coming of the Lord. So Helena's name means a revelation of the coming of the Lord, which is exactly what God said her story was going to be in the hearts of many. The first day that she was held by her mom and dad simultaneously, that she actually met her new parents. She had met me, but Melissa didn't arrive until that Sunday. The first day she met both of us at the same time was on Christmas morning. The day that she first stepped foot in our home and met her brothers and her sister was on January 7th, which is Ethiopian Christmas Day. Helena Noel Milliken, our God is unshakable. So he's trustworthy. He's loving. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's a father to the fatherless, and he is our redeemer. Do you trust him today? If not, then I invite you to do that this morning, to trust in his faithfulness, to turn from trusting in a son of man with your life and putting your eternity and your life in the hands of the son of man. If you do trust him today, I want to encourage you to continue standing in his unshakable love so you can live an unshakable life. But not just that, but to be the representation of this unshakable father in the lives of others who are in the midst of a shaking themselves. That's why we have those tables set up in the lobby today. Two organizations that are serving some of the most shaken people in our society. The unborn and abandoned children. And I believe that God is calling us as a church to be the kind of unshakable people who stand in the gap on their behalf. Mosaic. Let's be the kind of church who does that.